I'm not a numbers guy. Yes, this is podcast 400. It's November the 21st, 2011. We've been doing this for seven years. An alternative form of journalism, an alternative form of radio, of podcasting. There's so much to be done in the world, and there's so much to be talked about and learned. I'm not into just talking about numbers, but I am happy. We're at 400. You're here with me, and I've got a guest that inspires. So let's do it. Everything is the same, even if it's different. Exactly. But our everyday mind forgets this. We think everything is separate, limited. I'm over here, you're over there, which is true. But it's not the whole truth, because we're all connected. We need to learn how to see the blanket truth all the time, right in the everyday stuff. Ultimately, if you want to bring about important social change, it has to be through citizens' movement. That's democracy. That's when democracy comes alive. So, hello everyone, and welcome back to citizenreporter.org. It's the 400th program, 400 episodes, 30 minutes on average, uh, and it's an exciting moment in the history of this program. And I wanted to have someone special, of course, someone who's had an impact on me uh, as a voice on the internet. And I'm very happy to have really one of my favorite people on the internet, and I've been listening to him every week since about 2005. Uh, He's the host of Radio Open Source, and really, uh, the first podcaster, uh, Christopher Lydon. It makes me very happy to have you on my program. Welcome. Mark, thank you. Uh, Listen, I'm thrilled to be on a line with you. I so admire your work, and you've been enthusiastic about mine. You know, what more could I ask? And we're in this crazy weird sort of original elliptical orbit yeah you know separately but together and it's fun yeah it is it is and over the years you know we i think we've both encountered people that perhaps know each other or just work that happens to yeah bump into uh one another uh for the people who don't know you who are listening which i find surprising but um you started podcasting uh you know people often say you're the first podcaster i agree it was it was in late 2004, wasn't it? No, it was actually late 2002, I suppose, oh, or early early '03. Yeah. yeah, I was a fellow at the at the at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, sort of tucked into the Harvard Law School, and they had fellows of various kinds. And in came uh, a proto blogger named Dave Weiner, and I had been told that he was coming he had a blog still does called scripting news he's a technologist really programmer uh i knew of him and i i just sent him an email i said dave weiner yesterday i didn't know how to spell blog uh, tomorrow <laughs> i want to be one and he wrote back cool and let's meet and we became friends and collaborators but basically he said to me early on look what the world needs is a syndicated sound file he, he was a developer of RSS, Real Simple Syndication, himself, and uh, 
I, I didn't know any of this lingo. I didn't know the technology. But I said, that's interesting. He said, you know radio. I know programming. We can do this thing together. So off we went, and we used to talk all the time. He knew what we were talking about. I barely did. But by the spring, uh, you know, it was June '03. He said, I think we've got it. He, meantime, we'd been searching for MP3 recorders. There was really no such thing. Yeah. Uh, edited into MP3 files and whatnot. But basically, he doped it out, and I said, okay, now now what do we do, Dave? And he said, well, that's obvious. You're going to interview me, and we're going to put it out on the, on you know, to a list of my friends and yours. And we did. That's what claim I have to, to being uh, <laughs> not so much the third podcaster as having done the first podcast, yes. which I think it was. And I, I, I kid with Dave. I say, uh, you know, between us, Dave, we're the Neil Armstrong of uh, the podcast world. And, uh, you know, we, we got to the moon first. Now everybody goes there. I, I always say he did most of the work and he knew sort of what had to be done and how to do it. But uh, I was there in spirit. Yes. And I, I, that's the only thing I'd say for myself, Mark, is that um, I felt... That was an amazingly uh, pregnant moment in the world and in my life. It was the start, of course, of the war in Iraq, which I felt militantly was just a freaking disaster mm. from the first glimmer in Paul Wolfowitz's eye and and liked to say so. But it was also a moment when, as you remember, I mean, every single newspaper you can name endorsed that war. Yeah. And the New Yorker magazine and every, you know, the Times and the Washington Post and most of its most famous columnists, certainly Tom Friedman and also Maureen Dowd and everybody, including Tom, I mean, uh, Dan Rather said, you know, where do I sign up? There was this, you know, to my mind, just herd of idiots going off the cliff together. And I thought, this is truly a rotten media establishment and praise god here we have the internet where free voices can can gather and compare notes a friend of mine spoke of it as the the second superpower rears its beautiful head but that was the spirit in which we thought holy miracle we can we can actually do journalism and radio even outside the bounds of of what we you know, considered the authorities, the the gatekeepers of old. That was the spirit in which we launched it. And for me, and still, it, it was a big breakthrough in what in those days they called semiotic democracy, sort of a bottom-up conversational democracy. And, you know, what's happened to it is something we'll talk about, but still, to me, a big, big breakthrough. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time when I do my uh, talks at conferences, but especially in the university classroom or in the informal classroom, as I sometimes find myself in countries where the university classroom isn't quite working yet. Um, I, I always drag students back into the past. Sometimes they really look like they don't want to come with me, but I need them. I need them to understand that for me, the more I read about it, and I lived a lot of this as well, just exactly what you're talking about, that there was this perfect convergence of the era we lived in, uh, yep. which included all this media that was out of touch. You know, I, had, I have CNN International over here in, in Amsterdam, and there are regularly commercials for the fanciest hotel or 
even fighter jets. And you have to wonder, besides the actual content of the news as well, who is this for? Who are they talking to? Uh, and and right. certainly, who are they talking about? Which was often quite out of touch with things going on in the world that all of us knew were an issue, but yet we couldn't get it from the mainstream media. And then at the same time, this technology becoming more affordable, more accessible. It's interesting what you said about trying to find, uh, in 2003, I think, uh, an MP3 recorder. There were players, right? But but not everyone knew of, of recording. I remember myself here in Amsterdam, you know, everybody rides bikes here. You've been here, right, Chris? Yeah, long ago, long ago. Yeah, and everywhere you look, it's bikes, right? So sometimes you're riding down the bike path and you see somebody coming the other way and you have a chance. Sometimes they often look each other in the eyes. I often notice what's in their ears, what kind of earbuds. I used to always mm. notice the MP3 player often around the neck or in a pocket. And it was becoming, at that time, the MP3 player, this sort of transition from what was probably the, the Discman or nothing. And I noticed, yeah, you know, this is becoming much more affordable and common. Now, they were listening to music for the most part, but I kept thinking we could, uh, and just as Dave Weiner also saw it, and, and you, uh, we could put actual knowledge, uh, educational content, uh, reports, and, and they could be from, in theory, anyone. So this was a sort of perfect synergy and, and the, the, the broadband that became so readily available. I always try and explain this to the people who want to be journalists today. My problem that I often have is they don't always seem to understand why I want to do this. Perhaps I should get over this obsession. <laughs> uh, why you want to speak in your own voice. And, and why I want them to understand how we got here. Uh, you know, it's one of those things. We live in an era where people drive a car. They don't know how the car works. They don't have to know. But I feel like it's good to know. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You know, I, I've had a long sort of romance in, you know, in my grown-up life, certainly 15 years, with Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, the, the Sage of Concord, 1803 to 87 or something. But a, a very wise man in an entirely American voice. But I call him the god for bloggers, and I find in the Internet – a kind of amazing vindication of of Emerson's thinking, but specifically, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron iron string. Speak in your own voice. Follow the gleam in your own mind from within. Don't worry about consistency. The famous hobgoblin of <laughs> little minds, as he said, and and. Uh, uh, don't worry about conformity either. Every man must be a nonconformist. Learn to speak in your own voice. Think for yourself. Don't give me quotes. Give me your thinking. Blah, 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 blah. It goes on forever. And it's all wise. I think, I think once I discovered Emerson, of course, I wanted to be Emerson, but I wanted to embrace that amazing freedom we have, not only in this still, praise God, free country, but we are individual minds. We are all different and yet as emerson knew in 1840 we are all connected it's one universal mind hmm. it's one universal brain he was a great intercultural guy he he read persian poetry he knew the great englishmen of his time including you know wordsworth and carlyle but he he was deep into buddhist thinking world thinking he knew about interactive cultures and he he, he was he believed, you know, more than anything in sort of enthusiastic conversation and, and connections. 
the name of our old radio program was The Connection. The Connection, but, I mean, yeah. uh, Anyway, all of this, this was another convergence for me, an opportunity given by the technology to speak in your own voice, to follow the gleam in your own mind from within, as he said. Hmm. So uh, the idea of participatory democracy, of a democracy of ideas, of conversation, was something I was ready to kind of plunge into. Isn't there a clash there with all the, the beautiful things which you've just described, the, the freedom and the, the uniqueness of each voice? Isn't there a clash with the traditional so-called uh, acceptable journalism of how it should be? You know, I, I did journalism school, and, and what shocked me most for, for much of it was it was very, this is how you do it, now go and do it. And I remember always sitting there thinking, I don't, I don't want to do it this way. Well, absolutely. I mean, this, this is another thing that was sort of uh, dawning on me in this moment of 2002, 2003, in the run-up to the war. Uh, suddenly, we were seeing everything that's wrong with the old model of, of journalism school journalism. And, and I hate to say it, but with the New York Times journalism, which I had, I had been formed by, I read it in high school, I worked for it in the 70s, covered a lot of politics, and wrote a lot of stuff for the New York Times, but there it was uh, with this sort of top-down, exclusive standard and, and a completely wrong head about what was going on right around it. And it was, uh, it was a moment of... I, to me, very poignant, not just rebellion, but of sad realization that, no, uh, here, here we have another model in the Internet of a, of, a, of a network of people that can talk from the bottom up and say, uh, I, mean, I always thought of Walter Cronkite, whom I knew very, very slightly and <laughs> admired hugely. He's a wonderful reporter, but that ridiculous end of his broadcast in which he would say, well, that's the way it is. I'm Walter Cronkite. You're not. Go to bed. You know, go to sleep. Uh, we've just told you everything you need to know, and we'll interrupt the sitcom if, if the war breaks out or something. The, the, the implication that 300, 500 employees of, of CBS News could tell you that's the way it is, and you just wanted to break in and say, no, Walter, hello, that's not the way it is at all. Uh, here's my view. But to me, having done you know, my New York Times service, I thought, wait a sec, now we have a model of a very, very different assembling of the news. You have, say, a thousand New York Times employees, hmm. including the truck drivers and the reporters and editors, uh, uh, putting out their version to a million, two million, three million, five million, but on that order of magnitude, number of people who are the best informed, the best read, the most strategically located observers in the world, and you have a way for them on the internet to feed back. No, that's not the way it is, Walter. I'm here in Moscow. I'm here at, you know, Duke University or Berkeley, or I'm here in the plains of Kansas. This is the way it really is. And we still have this, kind of, this, this mechanism, not quite developed yet, but for a feedback of interested people to, re you know, to shape a much wiser frame on the world, but in, and including those parts of the world that we don't normally include, uh, you know, the darker parts, the poorer parts, the, the, the hungry parts. Um, and uh, I thought... This this is this is a moment. There was a 
even at the Berkman Center, especially at the Berkman Center, there were lots of people, including my friend Ethan Zuckerman, who, who really thought, we used to kid about it, but we were deeply serious. He is the Ghana guy. His blog is called My Heart is in Accra. But we used to say, if there were 100 bloggers in the Congo, that war would end. If you could shed light and give voice to the un vastly undercovered parts of the world, you could change the world. I still believe it. As I say, we haven't done it. But yeah. th th there was a potential revolution here. Yeah. I, I often get disappointed to some extent, although as much as I still definitely agree with you that the possibility exists. But when I, I, I've traveled to regions like, like Georgia, take Georgia, you get a Georgian drinking a little bit, and they say some things they normally wouldn't, or perhaps they've been thinking. And very often, as someone who worked in Russia for, for some time, they said, Mark, honestly, Russia's a problem, huh? And I remember thinking to myself, okay, it's drinking a little bit, but, but these people, many, uh, still believed in the, what I'll call a myth or a sweeping generalization that could not be true, and I've seen not to be true, that one group of people across a border is out to get you. Totally. Now, the government mm -hmm. may be, in fact, but, but th there was this uh, surprise on my part as someone who thought, well, we've got the, the communication tools. You know, if you want to speak with a Russian as a Georgian, there's so few barriers nowadays in, in, in terms of, you know, physically or, or via the Internet doing it. Um, you could communicate and, and there, you could dispel any rumor about what your culture is, is about or not about. And yet these conflicts still exist and, and to such a strong level. Um, it, it, it's something that still concerns me a great deal because I thought that even by now, I know it's rushing it a bit, but that we would have achieved or had achievements to point to and say, look at what the internet has been able to do. Now, I know that in the last few years we've had some great mm. moments of hope when we look at the Arab Spring and now, and now with Occupy Wall Street. Uh, so I guess I shouldn't forget these positive examples. Well, no, th th this is where it gets sticky and it gets sort of interesting about the present and the future. I mean, I think in so many ways, um, in this country, the public conversation feels more monopolized, propagandized, sort of uh, um, the reign of bullshit uh, than ever. It, it, it has not been democratized and people haven't realized in a strange way that the old rules don't apply anymore. The terms of authority have changed. You, you don't have to buy a single line on anything. Reality is complex. There are many, many ways to look at it, whether it's Russia or hunger or uh, war or Israel-Palestine or, or bestsellers or anything. There, there are, we, we know, we know, take books, for example. People complain to me, about the New York Times book review, and it's getting so thin, it's almost a joke. I, I think it's kind of at a low ebb in terms of its intelligence. On the other hand, if you want to read good commentary on books, good argumentation, you know, lots of disagreement, uh, it's, it's a fantastic time to be reading books critically and talking and finding people who, who want to engage on them. Uh, it hasn't really happened. It, it has happened in in sort of conventional politics, arguing about the Republican debates, say. It really hasn't happened uh, in, in the Congo or in, in the forgotten places of the world. But I don't know. I think it's, 
I, I share your misgivings, and I sometimes I get very uh, upset that we haven't ventilated much of anything yet. Yeah. On the other hand, I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't at all give up on it. And no. I think, right. you know, th- these tools are going to be here and useful f- for a very, very long time. And we're also, I mean, the, the, old, the old models of journalism are collapsing in front of our face. It's one thing, they're going bankrupt, they're losing audience, they're losing advertisers. Um, and yet we haven't built that new conversation yet. Yes. I wanted to go back in your in your career, especially radio open source. I never knew, of course, the the back the background and the behind the scenes. And of course, we'll never know everything. Some stuff was not meant to be known, um, but. I saw it very much as a transition. You had radio open source at the time, uh, what was that, 2005 or so when it started? 2005. Yeah, and right. it was both on the radio and on the internet, which was very clear to me as an internet uh, um, uh, follower that I could see that some people were definitely from the radio audience, and there was this great meeting of the two. Um, and then about 2007, if, if I'm not mistaken, it becomes solely internet uh, distributed. Did you feel it? Because I, I am assuming that you would, even though the internet is so vast that you would feel a loss of an audience. Oh, for sure. And, um, we didn't, we didn't plan it that way. We lost a major funder and we simply couldn't sustain it with the money we had on hand. Um, so, uh, and I was disappointed in in many ways, I have to say that we didn't, we didn't, we weren't able to continue that hybrid experiment of an interactive radio program that was also, you know, downloadable and sort of listenable on demand and with with a more complex way of getting in and out and interacting. Um, but that's just the way, that's just the way it happened. Uh, but in this world, and I, I, I guess I'd have to say at this stage in my professional life, uh, all these accidents are sort of interesting surprises and you roll with the punches and you see what else is possible. And so many, many things are possible in the new configuration of things. Uh, and new things will be possible all, you know, all yeah. the time. When we were doing that show on the radio and the web, sometimes we would say, half kidding, that this is – this is a, a a website with a radio show, or, or it's a blog with a radio show. It's, it's not a radio show with a blog, um, and it was fun to sort of uh, sort of see ourselves in the you know in in this crazy world of change. I I still I still see myself that way, and I find also that um, well, put it this way, so, some of the some of the question is economic you know the the old public radio design of a show and the way it was organized needed a certain number of producers it needed uh, a certain amount of equipment it needed attachment to one strongly supported radio station and then others joining in etc this is why we have the NPR configuration of things, and I've worked in that world. But it's not the only world. There's been a huge marking down of the values of these things so that I could only organize a radio program now 
with people making less, me making less, smaller numbers of people doing more different things. We, you know, we used to do four hours of radio a week on Radio Open Source. Uh, now I do probably, you know, more like two hours a week of podcasting. But to me, it's just, it's all one great evolving experiment. And what you lose in in volume or in money, you make up in independence and speaking in your own voice and finding people who, like you, who for one crazy reason or another, hear your frequency and and want to join in the conversation. So, um, yeah. I, I, what I feel is that we're in a sort of great, brand new sorting out of the possibilities in this medium. And, and the only thing I would be afraid of would be that um, people would lose an awareness of what the magnificent possibilities are and stop listening for distinctive voices, people speaking straight, not for commercial or sort of just ratings kind of, uh, you know, approval. I, I, find, I find, to me, the, the atmosphere that I work in is... is is hugely wonderful. It's always new. I'm 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 my own best staff person. I'm my own toughest critic. I have wonderful people working with me, but it's all kind of let's do it because we we really want to do it. Mm. I'm curious, and, I, and, and I, I'd have to say I go ahead. I would be hard pressed to think of a sort of an, a, a big institution in established media where I could have that pleasure. Yeah. I, in, in other words, I'm not, I'm not pining for jobs in, in straight media. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, how, how about you? I mean, I bet, I, I bet you don't miss working for CNN or <laughs> a, ABC well, I, Radio. Well, uh, I, I skipped a lot of that, um, for better or for worse in some cases. You know, I, I grew up in a family, uh, as we were talking before we started recording, an immigrant family in Newark. By chance, my father and mother were very into radio. We did the radio program for the Portuguese community. Even as a child, they typed up what I should say for the children's show, and I would really? read it. Yeah, yeah, I would introduce records, Portuguese records, and I would introduce holidays. And It was a community radio program. It was in our basement. And then we would drive it over to New York City on Sundays, and it would air on, I want to say, WNYWK or something along those lines. It, it was, you know, a channel Good that you. few people cared about. But and and that's that's how far that went. By the time I was an actual more more conscious teenager, um, I did work at the Village Voice. I was but an intern, a researcher. Although working under one of the greatest, uh, in my opinion, uh, journalists, um, Wayne Barrett, who put me to work. Yes. I mean, he yes. had me in the courthouses. He had me in the you know the public documents. He had me knocking on mobsters' doors. Uh, I, I befriended quite a number of, of shady characters. Uh, mostly because of his encouragement uh, to go talk to people. And I read the voice for Wayne Barrett. What a marvelous man. Yeah, yeah. And occasionally he still notices me mentioning him on Twitter and he sends me a message and he laughs uh, because he's just, he's just looking into it, but he's not totally into the new media. Um, so we were his new media people at that time. But I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't have the big career in... in or radio or newspapers, and sometimes I, I pay the price for that because I'm not a known quantity to enough people, so I don't receive as much support, you know, and, and then th there we get into the, um, the beauty of the freedom and the drawbacks to, to being an independent producer, and in my case, 
uh, with less of a track record, although now I've been doing this 10, well, uh, blogging for 10 years and, and podcasting for now seven, um, I, I find it very difficult. Uh, I have to look to some sources like The Guardian, for example, that where an editor happens to like my work, so there I can, I can write uh, and, and get some compensation for it. So it's it's a difficult juggle, and I honestly I still haven't figured it out. Four hundred shows, and I'm still, you know, people still ask at the dinner party, "What do you do?" And you say, "I'm an independent reporter." And as interested as they might be, they also become concerned, and they say, "Can you make a living from that?" And I hmm. say, "Well, I'm I'm finding a way." But if I were to tell the truth, I would say, "Well, I'm not sure about the long term." But but I would also add exactly what you said. I'm committed to this. This I do this not because it's the job that that pays the bills. I do this because I feel a drive, it, an importance, uh, and it's it's a life project. Um, so the the money part I have to figure out. And if I'm doing a bad job of that, well, I simply have to improve. But uh, yeah, do, do you ha- do you, is this your full time job, Mark? No, no, my I have no full time job. I'm a freelancer. Uh, some years ago, I I got rid of the jobs that put me in offices for more of t- too many hours of the week because I wanted there to be time to do this, to do my my research, to to conduct my interviews. So I'm now a freelancer, working as an editor for small magazines, um, as a contributor to to a few other publications, few that are very known, but at least that pay, and I do a lot of uh, work for the the journalists that we know and love who aren't so technical, who would like a good website, who would like, uh, or at least for Dutch journalists, you know, I do the, I make clean up their English uh, for books, and, and so I do all the odd jobs in media. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it, um, it's fun, it's interesting, it's hard to say how I will live years from now. <laughs> um, and I'd have to say the same for me. Uh, although I'm older than you and I don't have probably as long as many working years ahead of me as you do. But um, at, at the same time, you know, I, I have been working in media, at the New York Times and public radio, NPR, public television uh, for a long time. And maybe that, uh, I don't know, gives me a little uh, notoriety to start with or familiarity or maybe a professional reputation and then uh, a little cushion too for which I'm hugely grateful but meantime uh, you know I I serve at the Watson Institute at Brown University and I'm very very grateful for the support that they've given me Hmm. so how how did that come to be by the way Uh, I always pictured it as you saying to someone you know at the Watson Institute listen you got you got to support us you know this this program and you know it and then they came on board with you, but maybe it didn't happen that way. I mean, how did you get you know, an institution? Happened, it, it happened the other way, actually. There were people at the Watson Institute who who had been through the Berkman Center on Internet and Society, and I think they saw me as an energetic kind of older explorer in this new world, but with, with the conventional you know, uh, radio and journalistic training and discipline and experience that could help them think anew in in this unfolding mystery called media and multimedia and combined media and citizen media and informal media. So they asked me uh, to come and hang here, and that's, that's the way it happened. Hmm. Uh, 
and that's also interesting because there you are at a university, uh, uh, an excellent one, right? And you get to see, or do you get to see, uh, uh, the you know the journalism students and and what they're thinking when it comes to the future as they are the future, right? Um, do you get to see a lot of that? Do you get to to speak with them? Sure, and a number of them uh, have come and worked with me uh, on both sort of technical production sides and editorial sides. And, you know, I think, not to blow our horn, Mark, but I think what we're really doing is showing the next generation of people, uh, of practitioners, uh, how it can be done with the old skills and the new equipment in, in a worthwhile way that's also tremendously satisfying. There, mm. there are two recent graduates of Brown working with me closely right now, and there have been a number of others, uh, but they talk a lot about their ambitions in journalism, in writing, in being citizens of this new world. And one thing we, we hear a lot about is the unhappy uh, place that the, the, their, their friends and classmates find themselves in, in the in the market of straight commercial journalism. It's not what it used to be, to be blunt about it. It's not, uh, this, it's not the adventure. You don't, it, it doesn't have the readership. It doesn't have the respect. I think what you and I are doing is showing the next generation uh, that it can be done sort of uh, on your own hind legs with your own Reading, experience, curiosity, uh, lust for travel, and and uh, different stories. And uh, I also think the other the other thing I, that satisfies me, uh, maybe I'm easily satisfied, but uh, <laughs> that 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 I, I I do feel we're doing is uh, showing public radio, especially uh, the kind of energy independence. Sometimes not not even outspokenness, but just kind of free ranging curiosity uh, that they're going to need in the future. I th- you know Bill McKibben wrote a good piece about this in the New Yorker Review of Books a few months ago. But his basic thrust was it's the podcasters who are doing the best stuff in radio, whether they're on the radio or not. The radio will eventually come back to their example your example, my example, for, uh, for the voices that the new media is going to need. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, 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 you know, I have great respect for public radio, but it, you know, again, where were they uh, around this horrific war in Iraq, which yeah. will which will really cost my children and my children's children very, very heavily. There was no outspoken common sense in, in uh, either the commercial or the public media of this country. Neither is there much wit or wisdom. I mean, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to generalize, but it was Bill McKibben's judgment that, that the liveliest audio out there is on the on in the podcast of independent people like you and me, or my friend Ben Walker, who, who does has done all sorts of wonderful radio theory of everything, your radio nightlight, uh, too much information. Uh, these have been some of his his shows over the years. But 
But spirits like Ben uh, are the ones that I think will populate the new world of much more uh, chosen media. Yeah. I, I want to transition it for the last part here of the program um, to uh, especially some of your series you've done uh, abroad in other countries. Uh, although you did just remind me of just a, a minor thought that can lead us there, which is I've often felt the conflict, the inner conflict um, when I, I've done media trainings in Afghanistan. And although my specialty is right. photography, I have a lot of dealings with photographers in Afghanistan, Afghans that are there. And it's, it's a hard situation to be, because I am very much an evangelist for things like Creative Commons and open Me licensing. And, and then you, you get confronted by the young and very dedicated, life-risking photographer in Afghanistan whose priority, besides taking photos, is to sell them. So it's a, it's a tricky thing to say, I believe in, I put Creative Commons licenses, uh, the type that, that don't require any uh, um, monetary compensation. And there I am talking to a photographer who certainly lives in much more difficult circumstances than I do uh, and, and needs to sell those photographs. So he often is not as interested in the new media tools that say share. He does like the ones that say communicate, uh, uh, you know, become known. But it's one of those conflicts. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you, I think you recognize what I'm saying. Sure, and I, I, but I have no answer for it. The yeah. fact is that um, nobody has a business model to make good money out of the new media. I mean, for, for producers, the old notion, I mean, we, we keep saying content is king, but it's not. Content is everywhere. Content is cheap. Um, the Afghan photographer's work can, can be found so many other different places. Um, I, I don't know what the, what the answer is, except that uh, the market will drive him to be very, very distinctive and maybe, maybe his best. Yeah. It, it becomes an addiction to, and, I, and I've recognized it, I've seen it, to uh, risking your life. Uh, uh, not risking your life, but going places where others wouldn't dare. Um, to get the mm -hmm. kinds of photos, it makes it more valuable. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's going on in that area that concerns me to some extent, uh, the addiction to danger. Um, but, but let's transition it to something else. You've done a series this year, uh, this past summer, from, of all places, a great place, uh, Pakistan. And what I wanted to ask you, just like the series you did with Ghana, which I believe was also a, a year ago at this point, um, uh, even before you got up close and personal, uh, what, what drew you to these places? Well, you know, uh, I, 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 I wish I could say I'm an inveterate traveler. I, I did sort of start traveling right out of college. Uh, I haven't traveled anything like as much as I want, but we all, we all want to get to, uh, distant places. I was drawn to Ghana, how did that happen? Um, oh, well, I had gone there, actually, with a Berkman Society, uh, I mean, a Berkman, a Berkman Center project in, in 2002, uh, 2002, right after 9-11. Uh, there happened to be an internet conference going on there, and I sort of hooked a ride. But I, the plan was to see if we can start a radio program or or. or Hi, not hijack, but you know, get ourselves <laughs> on the radio in Accra, and I landed in Accra, not knowing a soul in 
in Ghana, but I had one name of a young young technologist, Eric Osiakwan, who met me and said, we can do this. We literally got in a taxi cab the next day and went around from radio station to radio station and said, we can't pay you, but I will do good radio. We'll do it in the middle of the night if necessary, but I would love two, three hours a night for two, three weeks, and we'll make it fun. And a wonderful place, Choice FM, offered us a spot. And uh, I think we were on like from 10 till 1 in the morning or something like that. And uh, it was just unbelievable, the energy and the intelligence and the, the pleasure with which people called. We organized, I must say, we produced good programs around real subjects and real people, music, uh, debt, you know, the, the, world, the world Bank and mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of cultural literary matters, historical matters, uh, and that we had a sort of serious agenda every night. And people called with, with, with a terrific energy to be part of the conversation. Before that, actually, I mean, this was an important moment for me before that, several months before that, right literally a month after 9-11. We had planned this before 9-11, but we went to Jamaica, and Ben Walker was working with me at that point, and we... I think we paid something nominal to be on late at night on RJR, Real Jamaica Radio, old, established, powerful station that reaches the whole island and and uh, live streams to the world. Th- this was a big lesson for me, Mark. Mm. Get on there. And again, we talked about substantive stuff. We talked the first night. We talked about with with the. Corrections Commissioner about a prison we'd visited in in Kingston, a really shocking sort of, but interesting place. And we talked with reggae artists, we talked with writers, we talked with again historians. I remember we talked with a guy who uh, had did sort of uh, sex tourism. I mean, he the, these sort of rastitutes and mm-hmm. in in on the beaches and and but we talked about ganja. We talked about everything, but sort of one night per subject, and uh, people, again, called with tremendous energy. But I remember a guy called and said, uh, the way they do in Jamaica, this was 11 o'clock at night, he said, uh, good night, Christopher, well, welcome to Jamaica. And uh, I said, uh, as I said to all of them, uh, tell me where you're calling from. And he said, I'm calling from your part of the world, I'm calling from Brooklyn. <laughs> and I think he said, you may not know this, but there are 500,000 Jamaicans living in Brooklyn. And I didn't know it. And a lot of them listen online to their hometown radio station, RJR. And I suddenly realized, wait a sec, this is a a wild and crazy intersection of live radio broadcast in Jamaica and live stream radio all over the world. Uh, but, pe- you know, the, the Jamaican diaspora, which is huge and interesting and very, very sophisticated about the nature of the world, but also, you know, home is home, and they listen, and they call in. They get, in the United States, they can call in free on the on the phone grid, you know, eight hundred number. Mm-hmm. So, in any event, I thought this this is something important. This is to be to have a world conversation. It's also a local conversation, and you know, we played with the local and the global. But I did it again in Ghana, and then I went to Singapore and did the same thing. See, what are the first question is what are the subjects on which you can get both a local and a scattered diasporic uh, mm. audience to to respond. Well, anyway, this was opening my eyes early in the days of the Internet to some of the possibilities 
uh, that were out there. And then I, w- I went back to Ghana because I'd made some friends there who who invited me to come back. And uh, I went to the University of Cape Coast. Oddly enough, a good, a good friend of mine, now a very, very close friend. I visit him in Cape Coast. He visits me. He's here in, in New England tonight, and I'm going to see him <laughs> first time in a couple of years. But um, these things develop. And uh, in, in Cape Coast, which is the site of that horrifically powerful uh, sort of way station for slaves in the Middle Passage. I mean, in, in, the, in slave time, there was a giant warehouse. It's now known, oddly enough, as the Cape Coast Castle, but mm-hmm. where slaves were, were held uh, before the shipment. I mean, it's a chilling, chilling place, but with a very lively university, very lively fishing community, very lively population, including retired Americans. But the only point was simply my friend there helped me organize a number of really fascinating conversations, including with him. And I thought, again, this is part of what's possible. And then uh, that was the winter of 2010. In the summer of 2010, I went to India Mm. Again, mm-hmm. basically the same idea. I had a list of people that I knew I could talk with, and I had a lot of sort of connections that would lead me to more. Yes. Uh, we were there for about two or three weeks and, and did a lot of broadcasts, but podcasts. And then, but then this past summer, uh, I thought, well, there's this other part of the story, Pakistan, and I wanted to do something with it. I also had this sort of working supposition that, I mean, we know that Afghanistan does not threaten the United States. We have grave doubt that even Iran can or could ever threaten the United States. But there's a way in which when you look for what is the obsession, what is the problem, uh, what are we so afraid of, Pakistan has a more plausible mm-hmm. sort of combination of the elements. It has nuclear weapons in spades. It has an age-old, horrible, artificial but real rivalry with India. It's strategically there between, you know, the stands of the old, you know, mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Kazakhstan and the old extensions of the Soviet Union, but also between its borders on China, it borders on Iran. So why not go? And if I had a little hypothesis, it was, what if the problem is not Afghanistan at all, and it's not even Afpat, it's the unhealed wounds of partition Oh, yeah. With India, 1947, 1947. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the sort of general hypothesis. And a woman, a woman who liked my radio broadcast in the past had written to me on Facebook that she, was, she had gone to graduate school in Boston, but she had moved back and was living in Islamabad and finding it a wonderful place to live. And I thought, wow, that's news. So uh, that was basically the way we went. And with my prejudice for interviewing novelists, uh, but also historians, also musicians. That was the way we went. And partly just to stare down the fear of going, but also to try to try to get closer to what it is the United States fears about the Muslim world. Hmm. And we spent three hardworking weeks there and came back with a lot of interesting material, I felt. And I'm very grateful to you for even noticing it. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and, and in my opinion, I mean, it's the kind of material that, that 
you know, it may have come out this summer, but it's it's valid uh, for for quite a long time to come, and and, so. and could be used in a, even in a classroom. I mean, if only, uh, especially for understanding a place that few people take the time to understand, or as we've discussed, if we rely on a lot of the traditional sources, we simply don't get uh, a, a complete picture or even much of an accurate picture uh, these days. I enjoyed it a great deal, especially having spent a lot of time on the border. Uh, with Pakistan and it's this in Afghanistan and it's this massive force that people speak about it's part of their life they go there for things uh, at the same time they fear it they point to it as the source of all problems I mean it's it, it's exactly what you said you know there's trauma there's so much trauma and from listening yep. to your podcast you hear it yeah, and there are great people that are describing what trauma can do and has done. Yep. And it's the same thing in, a, in Afghanistan. And we see it replayed over and over again in different, in different parts of the world, actually, is that trauma has these lasting effects that go on generations and oftentimes never get dealt with. So the problem simply continues. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I hope we'll do it again. Yeah. <clears throat> Everything changes the stories won't last forever but the i i think the example of you know ben mandelkern and i went together uh and as i say worked hard every day which why not but i mean uh the two people cheap dates could travel inexpensively uh, in a part of the world that most people even my friends and my daughters are all worried about me going at all but it can be done and you can find real people who tell you surprising stuff? The, the 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 to me the the dark side of it is simply that uh, I don't know how much of that it would take to counter the manipulations of of news that we get from Afghanistan. The incredible, relentless emphasis on uh, military news, as if there were military solutions. Um, also the um, the the otherizing of them, making them the problem, it's Islam, it's jihad, and all this stuff, which is, when you look at it, it's just nonsense. I mean, Pakistan is us. Pakistan Pakistan is two things, in my opinion. It's, it's the wounded little sibling of India, and if, you know, if it were up to me, uh, it never would have been created in the first place. Those societies had never been divided by a border or by nation statehood. They have much more in common than they don't. Uh, it was a political mistake. In fact, the, his, the, the, the two historians we talked to most authoritatively, but all sorts of people, uh, realized that it was it was a mistake. Even Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the father of his of the country, uh, the leader of the Muslim League, never he was bargaining for for position in the Congress party with Nehru. And in effect, he sort of said, if you don't give it to me, I'll take my marbles and go to another country. And Nehru, in frustration, I think, sort of said, you know, get lost. Call it Pakistan. Get out of here. Uh, but it, it, in a certain sense, A, it shouldn't have happened. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is that partly because Pakistan was born smaller, weaker, um, it lost Bangladesh. It needed a, a friend outside, and it got us. And we have used it unmercifully. We have taken terrible advantage of it. We've used it as an, you know, it was Henry Kissinger's approach route to China, but it was also our way, you know, in the late 70s of 
driving the Soviets out of Afghanistan. We, I mean, people talk, people are beginning now to sort of know what the Haqqani network is, that the people that are shooting at our troops, we invented the Haqqani network. Charlie Wilson, the Texas congressman, called the the patriarch of the Haqqani network the finest human being on the face of the earth. His colleagues went to the Reagan White House and sat, Ronald Reagan said, these are the, these are the equivalent of our founding fathers in the United States. We created the Taliban. We created Al-Qaeda. They were our agents against the Soviets. So so when you go to Pakistan, we meet ourselves. We meet our own policy coming back to haunt us. And we can't, conventional media, they know all this. Charlie Wilson's war was a, you know, a Tom Hanks movie, but they won't tell you. Oh, by the way, we are fighting the people that we financed, trained, armed, to fight the Soviets, and they're thoroughly pissed off at us for A, being, you know, who we are, but walking out on the deals we had with them. So, in any event, who else is going to tell you that right. but some innocent dude like me who's out there listening to straight people yeah. tell us about your country? And they say, well, first, don't you realize that the people who are killing us are the people you empowered? They're nuts. And you trained them. I mean, the University of Nebraska got millions and millions of dollars to write the the theological handbooks for the fanatics of of Pakistan. Um, And Saudi money paid for it. The CIA empowered it. So we are are confronting a monster that's, you know, very substantially of our own creation. And it, it may take independent anti-institutional journalists like me to keep telling people. But whether we'll ever catch up with the lie, I don't know. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was in, uh, and we have to wrap, wrap up, I'm sure, but um, I was in Macedonia uh, last week as well on this Balkans yeah, journey. You cover a lot of good ground. <laughs> I, I do. I try. Um, but I also try to be very active, of course, with, with my community here in Amsterdam. But I'm in Macedonia. I'm staying at this hotel, which was recommended by the university, uh, that, which was hosting me, actually. And the owner, or the co-owner, is a woman from Alaska. The, the good Sarah Palin, if you will. Hmm. And, and she's wonderful. She's, every day I go to eat breakfast, she's there. She's sitting, watching, making sure everybody's happy, checking what she could do different. And eventually, I, I just sit right with her and I say hello. Uh, and she realizes I'm American, so we chat for a moment. And I mentioned having worked in Afghanistan. And hmm. she says to me very honestly, like she really wanted to know and still did not know. She said, is it, do you really think we belong there? And she wasn't saying it like, we should get out of there. And she wasn't saying it like, we should really do more. She was actually quite just not understanding and, and, and open. And, yeah. I, and I said to her, listen, uh, I've worked there now. This was the second trip I've made there in, in two years. And I can tell you, I feel as strongly about this place, the bond that I have with the people, the beauty of the, pl- the actual you know, geography, as people will talk about. Uh, I feel as strongly about that place as I have ever about Texas or Pennsylvania. You know, the, the, I'm closer with people there, in fact. Uh, so if you're asking me, is it worth time, energy, money, risking, risking of lives, um, I- I'll tell you that it's worth whatever we can do to make things better. Uh, so, so in that sense, I'm, I'm willing, you know, to go. But uh, I think of these things a lot, you know, and, and, and I credit 
the internet, but especially the world of, of independent reporters, bloggers, content creators, who taught me that these borders, uh, not that, you know, and you mentioned great writers who have already taught us this, but once again, telling us that these borders and these hatreds that we have towards, especially the, the distrust of the unknown, it's all manufactured. And and, yeah. then, and then carried on by different structures, but we have what we need to get around it now. It's just people aren't doing it. Um, it, it maybe it doesn't seem as possible to people still. I think that's what happens a lot. You know, I look at my friends in New Jersey, beautiful people. I think that they look at my travels as impossible, as silly, as insane, um, and that we got to get over. Uh, absolutely, and I don't think they do, Mark. Really, I think they they might think you're eccentric and brave, um, but maybe that's the most important thing that people have to be reminded of of just how much we need independent voices. We don't we don't have enough, yeah. and we have a terrific sort of propagandistic pressure coming the other way. Yeah. Well. Christopher Lyson, I mean, it's 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 total pleasure to have you on. We, we should it's bring a it joy to, to be with you, Mark. I hope my voice sounds half as good as yours does coming back this way on Skype. It's another great. another amazing, you know, gift of the internet. Here we've talked for an hour, yes. free, yes, and um, I mean, free money and free in spirit. I I also got to say, I just admire your spirit so much, and I have vastly more to learn from you. I want to know uh, how do you just how you do it, and I want to get out there on the road with you sometime. All right. Well, what I'll do is uh, early next year, I'm thinking February, actually, I'll be in, in your neighborhood, and I will, we'll see about getting together and, and meeting in person. Uh, all of that to come, I, I very much hope so. Mark, I'm going to count on it. For, for anyone that doesn't know, of course, RadioOpenSource.org is where I go uh, to, to keep up not only with the programs as they come, but also the conversation uh, that you have been leading for, for many years and hopefully many more. Christopher Leiden, thanks so much. My 400th episode, I couldn't think of a better way to spend it. Mark, I couldn't, couldn't either. Thanks so much. That will do it for program 400, and I wanted to say one more time, as a listener, as someone who's left a comment, as someone who's shared, recommended, spoken about me somewhere, brought me somewhere to a country to speak somewhere, donated, thank you, and see you soon.
place and every single soldier was in fire. Some have quit.